Well, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm chapter 71. We're going to be in a lot of places today, but Psalm chapter 71 is where we will begin. Psalm 71 and verse 22. Uh, I use this illustration uh, when I was at, when I did the VBS message. And uh, so if you weren't here for VBS, this will be new to you. Uh, this is, does not come from myself. I saw this. I've tweaked it a little bit. Uh, but I think this really helps us understand the holiness of God. Now, when you think about it, when God created man, he created man without sin. He created us to where now we still had the capacity to sin, but we had no sin. We were sinless. We were made in the image of God. We were untainted. We were not dirty. We were not sinful. So Adam was in a perfect place without any sin. But then sin entered the world. Sin came in the form of a serpent or Satan who came down to tempt Adam and Eve. And I said, yes, Adam and Eve. To tempt them to partake of something God told them not to do. They were not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet Adam and Eve partook of the tree. They ate And thus sin was brought into the world. And when sin was brought into the world, it tainted mankind. So when we look at now, we're no longer clean. We're no longer pure. We're no longer without sin. In fact, we are sinful. Every time, every one of us in here is sinful. The Bible makes it very clear. Romans 3.23, for all, are you all Yes, you are. I'm in that category as you're in that category. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So every one of us is now tainted with sin. Now, when we worship and serve a holy God, the problem is, is our sinfulness can hinder that worship. That sinfulness can't be changed on our own. No matter how many good works we try to do, we cannot change who we have become. We are sinful. No matter how much good we try to do, no matter how many prayers we try to pray, no matter how many times we get baptized, we are sinful. We are sinful without what? Without Jesus. You see, God knew our sinfulness. God knew that we had been tainted by sin. And God knew that we needed a rescuer. God knew that we needed a savior. And so he sent his son who was holy, who was worthy who is glorious, who is perfected, who is beyond sin. And so he sent him down. And so unless we come to know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we're still in our sins. But the moment we surrender to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he cleans up that sinful life. In fact, he takes away the sin that is within us. He takes away our sin so that one day we stand before God holy, so that we stand before him in the righteousness of Christ, not in our own righteousness. Why? Because our righteousness is as filthy rags. But here's what you need to understand. Jesus is holy. He's without sin, and sin can't even touch the Savior of mankind. No matter how much sin you try to pour into him, he never, ever changes. He's perfect. He's holy. He's worthy. You can't change Jesus by the things of this world. He is without change. And then when we talk about the holiness of God, I want you to see that today, how holy the God is that we serve. He can't be touched by sin, but he can erase sin. He can change your life and he can remove it far from you so that you'll never ever be the same. So today we want to look at three characteristics of this God that we serve. The first one we want to look at is the God is holy. Our God 
is holy. We see first that his name declares it. I love it. Psalm 71 and verse 22. It simply says this. I will also praise thee with a psaltery, even thy truth. Oh my God, unto thee will I sing with the heart. O thou holy one of Israel. Don't you just love that name? I love the many names of God that are in Scripture. But he is the Holy One of Israel. In other words, when we talk about the holiness, he is untainted by sin. He can't be touched. He can't be tempted. He can't even think about sin. Our God is holy. He is never going to be touched. He's the Holy One of Israel. In fact, in another psalm, it says, I'll praise the Holy One. I'll praise Him for His holiness. I'll praise Him for His holy name. Everything about God, He is holy. He is untainted by sin. Not only does His name declare it, but even the angels declare it. I love it in Isaiah 6, 3. It says, the angels were surrounding Him and they decried, Holy, Holy, Holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. You go to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, and guess what? It says the creatures there that are surrounding the throne decry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You might say, well, why, why three times? Why can't they just say, holy is the Lord? Well, the number three represents perfection. God is three persons. He is perfect. When we talk about that, His holiness is perfect. It can't be touched. No matter how much sin we try to pour in, you can't touch God with it. So God's works declare, his name declares that he's holy. His angels declare he's holy. His character even declares that he is holy. In the book of Exodus chapter 15 and verse 11, it says, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Glorious in holiness. It is a characteristic that, let's be honest, as humans, because of our sinfulness, we can't comprehend because we fail daily. How many of you in here would admit you still sin even though you're saved? We still fail. But the amazing thing is, is because of God's great love for us, he paid for our sins. The penalty of our sin has been paid for, and we are not condemned any longer. We still need to repent and get things right, but we are guaranteed that we're going to heaven and have eternal life with Jesus Christ. What a blessing that comes from the Father. You realize his temple also declares, if you've got your Bibles, open up to Exodus 26, 33. You need to see this. This is so neat. The temple where he would be worshipped in Jerusalem would declare his holiness. Look at this in Exodus 26, verse 33. It says, And thou shalt hang up the veil... Under the tachets, and thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony, and the veil shall divide under you between the holy place and the most holy. Man, when you went to the temple of God, it was really a unique place. There was a court of the Gentiles. There was a court for the women. There was a court for the Jewish men. And they could go in there and they could worship God. But inside the temple, only the priests could go. The priests would go in there and they did a couple of things. They had a thing called the table of showbread that was on the right. And they would make sure that there were 12 loaves of showbread on that table every single day. Fresh loaves. And they would represent the 12 tribes of Israel and God's provision for them. There was a candelabra that was over to the left and it was lit. And it represented God's presence and his Holy Spirit unveiled over the people of Israel. But then they had this 
incense altar that sat in between the holy place and the holy of holies. What this incense altar did was it allowed them to light incense and cover and veil what was going on in the holy of holies. Now here's what happened. The holy of holies was only allowed to be entered into one time a year. It was during Passover. And what would happen is the priest would make a sacrifice for all the people of Israel. And then he would take the blood of that sacrifice and he would go into the high priest. Would then go into the veil after the incense had filled the place. He would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice by the altar of God in front of the Ark of the Covenant. That would cover the sins of the people for that year until the next Passover. So they would do this year after year after year. Why? And only one man was allowed to go in there. And then when he came out, he had to wash his clothes and wash his body and do all these things because he was an unholy man going in the presence of a holy God. But you know what Jesus did for you and for me? You know, when he died on the cross and right after he died, you know what happened? The veil was split in two. But here's the thing, it wasn't split from bottom to top, it was split from top to bottom because God's the one that tore the veil. And he tore back the veil and he said, you know what, because of the holiness of my son, it's no longer you have to go to a high priest, you can come to God directly through Jesus Christ. Every one of us can. He gives us the holiness to be able to come into the place where God's presence is because of what his son did for you and for me. But here's something you need to understand. God's character declares his holiness and we as his children are called to be holy. In 1 Peter 1.16, it says, Be ye holy as I am holy. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's, that's, that's a struggle, isn't it? Because, I mean, if we try to do it on our own, the Bible makes it clear that our righteousness is as filthy rags. We can't do it on our own. So God did it for us. And that's why I love 2 Corinthians 5.21. I know I quote it all the time, but I'm hoping you'll learn it. I'm hoping you'll memorize it. Because it is such an important verse for us as Christians. It says, He made him who knew no sin... To become sin for us. That we might have the righteousness of Christ in him. And I want you to understand what that means. Literally what happens is. Is when we surrender our lives to Christ. His standard doesn't change. It doesn't change. He can transform your life and my life and any life in this world. And take away the sins of our lives. What he does is we have to pray and seek his face. And turn away from our sins. We've got to shed that old life. We've got to say you know what. I no longer want to live in my sin. I ask you to forgive me for my sins. And I'm going to leave them in the past. But not only do we take off our sin. We've got to put on the righteousness of Christ. And when we do that. What we're saying is. Is we believe what Jesus Christ has done for us. That he died on the cross for our sins that he was buried three days later he rose again so that all of a sudden when we go before God in the midst of judgment we stand before him not in our sins not in our old life but we've been resurrected and given a brand new life so that we don't look like ourselves anymore we look like Jesus we put on his righteousness we put on his holiness so that when we stand before God he doesn't see us in our sins he sees us enraptured in his son's righteousness my God is holy. He's holy. Not only is God holy, but my God is perfect. Look at me in Deuteronomy 32, 4. You need to understand when we talk about God is perfect, Deuteronomy 32, 4 tells us that his work is perfect. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4. It says, he is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. God is truth. 
He's just, he's right, he's holy, and his work is perfect. Now, what does that mean? What, how does God work? Well, you need to understand, God provides for you. Isn't it amazing that God's provision for you is perfect? You have what you need. God declares that the birds don't have to work for food. He feeds them. The grass is clothed. He takes care of it. How much more is he going to take care of you? His provision for you is perfect. His preservation of you is perfect. Without God, none of us would have life. In other words, he gives us the very breath that we breathe. If he were to take away his hand, we'd all fall down dead. But God preserves our life. Not only does he preserve our life, but he also preserves our salvation. Our salvation is in him. And so it's guaranteed until he comes back that we're going to go and be at home with him. So that when he comes back, he takes us on. And I praise God for that. He is perfect in his work. Everything that God does is perfect. Not only is his work perfect, but his will is perfect. In Romans chapter 12, you've probably heard this verse many a time. Romans 12 and verse 2, it says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The perfect will of God. Isn't it amazing? You think about the way Jesus taught us to pray. When he taught us to pray here in this world, he told us to pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. His will in heaven is done perfectly, and therefore his will on earth can be done perfectly as well. Let me tell you something. When you go through sinfulness, that's not God. That's you. When you choose to go down the trail of temptation and fall into that sin, that's you. That's not God. When you choose to mess up and make mistakes, that's you. That's not God. His will is perfect. His will is to direct and guide and lead you away from the sinful things of this world. It is to lead you down a path of righteousness. So his will is perfect. His work is perfect. His will is perfect. And I love it because his word is perfect. The book of Psalms Chapter 12 and verse 6 declares just how perfect his word is when it says this. The words of the Lord, Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. You realize God's word is perfect. There is no error within it. You know, at my first church... Sometimes I'd have the people hold their Bibles up in the air and I'd have them repeat after me. And we'd say a few things together. In fact, they got to where they didn't need to repeat after me. They just said it along with me. And it sounds a lot like the pledge to the Bible. That's because most of it comes from that. All right. So if you heard it before, you know what I'm talking about. And I would say, this is my Bible. God's holy word. I will make it a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, and hide its words in my heart that I might not sin against God. And then I would say, it is the indestructible, inerrant, infallible word of God. Reading this book, I will never be the same. You think about that statement. It is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word is perfect because it will direct our paths. It will lead us in the right ways if we read his word. It's amazing. I'm telling you, and I know I've told this story before, but I'm going to just tell a little brief synopsis of it again. When I was praying about where God was leading me and my family, and I began to pray, and I said, God, I need you to show me where you want us to be. I was in Hosea of all books. Hosea. And the very last chapter, Hosea 14, I'm thinking, Lord, how are you going to answer my prayer? Verses 5, 6, and 7, Lebanon, Lebanon, Lebanon. God gave me a billboard. There was no doubt about it. It will direct your path. He will lead you. I promise you, he knows what he's doing. He's wise enough to handle those things for you. He can give you the direction for your life. It's a 
lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I'll hide its words in my heart that I might not sin against God. It's perfect for guiding you and directing you away from sin. God's word, when it penetrates your heart and you memorize it, here's the thing, when it comes to the sin that you're about to commit and you've memorized verses on it, all of a sudden those verses, the Holy Spirit begins to bring them up and you have to decide, am I directly going to disobey God? Or am I going to go ahead and do this anyways? God's word will keep you from sin. A wise old preacher once said, this book will keep you from sin or, this, or sin will keep you from this book. And that is so true. But then we say it's the indestructible. Because Jesus himself said what? Not one jot or one tittle will pass away from his word until all things come to pass. Everything God has promised will come true. It's the inerrant, infallible word of God. There are no errors in it. I, would, I challenge anybody to come up here and show me an error in the word of God. And I'll show you that you're a fool. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Because the truth is, you can't find an error. You want to know why? Because you're not smarter than God. And the moment you think you are, the moment... Here's what. If you can prove it, well, never mind. You can't. His word is perfect. And then it ends with, reading this book, I'll never be the same. Let me tell you something. If you want a life-changing transformation, read a Bible. Read it. I dare you. I promise you his word is so perfect that it will begin to change you from the inside out. He will transform you because his word is perfect. God's work is perfect. His will is perfect. His word is perfect. His knowledge is also perfect. Isn't it amazing that God's knowledge is perfect? He knows all things. Job 37 and verse 16, it simply says this, Dost thou know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge? It's funny, Wednesday night I had a young boy come up and talk to me. And he asked a very serious and a very important question that all children, I believe, ask at one point. But we got into the idea of the wisdom of God. And I asked him, I said, who is the smartest person you know? And for some reason he pointed at me. <laughs> I said, you're in a lot of trouble if that's true. And uh, we began to talk and I said, I said, well, if you think I'm smart, I said, let me just put it to you this way when it comes to the knowledge of God. I said, do you see the baptistry? It's full. I said, it's got water in it. I said, you know how full that baptistry is? How much water's in there? And he said, yep. And I said, my knowledge compared to God's is nothing more than a drop of that water in that entire baptistry. That's how small my wisdom is. God's knowledge is so unfathomable, he knows more than Google. And he certainly knows more than Facebook, CNN, MSNBC. He knows all things. If you want knowledge, let me tell you something. If you want to know your will, don't look to the stars. Look to the one who created the stars. Don't look and find your horoscope. Don't look out and check out what everybody else is saying. God has the knowledge for everything. He knows it all. His way is also perfect. Psalm 18 and verse 30, he declares, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in him. His way is perfect. Here's something else you need to understand. His standard is perfect. In Matthew 5, 48, he says, be ye perfect as I am perfect. Again, if you think about it, God tells us, be ye holy as I am holy. Be ye perfect as I am perfect. Here's the thing. When you get to heaven, if you're standing there on your own, you're in a lot of trouble because you're not holy and you're not perfect. The only reason by the praise and the power of God I'm able to stand there before God is because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. I am holy not in my own holiness but in the holiness of Christ. I am perfect not in my own perfection but because of the perfectness of Christ. 
I remember there was a young couple that came into a pastor one time and they wanted to be counseled because they wanted to be married. And so they went to the pastor and they began to talk to him and he began to counsel them. And after a while, he began to notice a pattern with the young lady. She kept saying, he has such potential. He has such potential. And she kept making that statement. And finally, the pastor goes, whoa, 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 whoa. She, he said to her, he said, ma'am, he said, uh, you realize you're not marrying his potential. You're marrying him. You're not marrying the man you're trying to make him to be. You're marrying the man he is. You realize that, right? Oh, but he has such potential. Ladies, if he just got potential, move on. <laughs> move on. Here's the thing. We don't say that about God. We're not looking at him and saying, man, I hope there's something we can change. If someone is perfect, you don't want to change anything about them. You don't want to change anything about them. If they're perfect, that means there's no problems with them. There's no sin. There's no unrighteousness within them. Even their thoughts are perfect. Everything they are is perfect. And that is only declared for one, and that's God. He's so perfect, we don't want him to change. Well, that's what brings us to our third characteristic, and that is that God is immutable. It simply means that God doesn't change. God doesn't change. How do we know that? Well, the Bible declares it in several ways. Number one, God's character doesn't change. In Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, it reads like this. Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. In Hebrews 13, 8, says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the book of James chapter 1, and verse 17, it says there is no variation, no shadow of turning with him. He doesn't need to change. You think about that. God's character is perfect. Why would we want him to change? He's the same. Now, here's what that means. That means if it was sin back then, it's still sin today. You realize that, right? It doesn't change. It hasn't changed. God hasn't changed his standard. He's not changed his stance. He's not changed who he is. And he won't change for you. Don't make him into the God you want him to be. Understand him as the God who he is from his word. My God is unchangeable. He has no need to change. But here's something that'll, that'll really get us sometimes because this is what bothers some people. But I need you to understand this very clearly today. He doesn't change his mind either. God doesn't change his mind. Now, I'm going to answer a couple of questions because I know you got them after I just said that statement. But I need you to understand from Scripture, he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't have to because he knows all things. Numbers 23, 19 says this. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? That's not a, the only one that teaches us that. But also in the book of Psalms, chapter 83, or chapter 33. Psalm 33 and verse 11 declares something very similar. It says this. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. God's mind doesn't change. You say, well, wait a minute, brother. Aren't there times in the Word of God where God changes his mind? Well, I'm glad you said that. We're going to answer that question. It's the word called relent. You've probably seen it 
Uh, the King James interprets it repent. I don't like that word. The reason why I don't like that word, God has nothing to repent of. So the word is actually relent in the Hebrew. It means to change. But listen and understand what he's saying here. In Jonah chapter 3 and verse 4, Jonah began to enter the city in a day's journey, and he cried, said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You go down to verse 10. It says, And God saw their works, and they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did not do it. Now a lot of people say, Wait a minute. He said he was going to destroy him, and then he didn't destroy him. He changed his mind. Well, no, let's read a few other scriptures to grasp and understand this. In the book of Joel, Joel chapter 3, it makes this statement. In Joel chapter 2, I'm sorry, Joel 2 and verse 13, it says this. And rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth or relenteth him of the evil. You look over in the book of Jeremiah and it makes a similar statement to this. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 18 Verses 7 through 11. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 11. It says this. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will relent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will relent of the good wherewith I said I'd benefit them. Here's what God basically says. He says, if I tell you that punishment is coming, but you repent and you turn from your wicked ways, by his own character, he will not bring about the judgment on you. That is not God changing his mind. That is God keeping his perfect character. He also says, if you're good and you choose to start doing evil, I won't keep giving my blessing to you, but I'll bring my judgment on you. God's purpose is simply this. His character doesn't change. His mind doesn't change. He knows everything. It's always funny. How many of you as a parent, you, you tell your kids, change my mind? You ever said that to your kid, knowing you ain't changing it? There's nothing they can say, nothing they can do to change your mind. You can't change God's mind. Why? Because he already knows what's best for you. Now, you might say, well, then why do we pray? Well, you don't pray to God to change his mind. You pray for God to change yours. You realize that, right? Because if you're praying, God, your will be done, not mine will be done, then guess what you're saying? You're saying, God, I'm willing to accept whatever you choose to do because you're holy, you're perfect, you're righteous, you know what you're doing, and I trust you. Change my mind. Now, there are several instances in Scripture where it says that God regretted. Some people will bring that passage up. They'll bring up the passage in Genesis 6-6 where it says, and it, uh, it, was, it says that it repented the Lord, but it actually says in the Hebrew, God was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. You say, well, if God doesn't change his mind, why was he grieved that he made man? The same statement's made in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where God said he was grieved that he had made Saul king. All that's simply saying is that he was grieved by their actions. He wasn't sorry that he made them. He wasn't sorry that he made Saul king. He knew what he was doing. He had done it for an intended purpose. What he's simply saying is this, is that he knew what was going on, but he was sorry that man chose to sin like they did during the time of Noah. And he was sorry that Saul chose to sin instead of being the king that God had hoped he would be. God didn't change his mind. You see, here's the thing. If you know all things... Why do you need to change? In the book of Exodus, 
Moses intervenes for the people of Israel. People will always bring this story up in Exodus 32 when they made the golden calf. And Moses intervenes for them and God says, step away Moses, I'm going to strike them all down. God said, I'm going to strike them all down. Now here's what you need to understand. Could God have done it? (laughs) That's a great question. I'm going to throw a kink in there for a second. God had promised that the Messiah would come through the line of Judah. And if God struck them all down and only left Moses who came from the tribe of Levi, God couldn't keep his promise, could he? No, he couldn't. God knew what he was doing. God said it because he wanted to see Moses intervene for the people. He wanted Moses to pray for those people. He wanted to do something great in the lives of those people. And boy, when you read the book of Exodus and you go all the way through the end of Deuteronomy and you go into the book of Joshua, you see how God led those people and you see what God was able to do. God had a plan. And you see, God's plan wasn't thwarted by the people's sin. God was even able to use, even in the midst of their sin, it still fulfilled his plan. You see, God doesn't have to change. He's perfect. Don't you love the old song, Great is thy faithfulness? Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. Think about that. He doesn't change. There's no shadow. There's no variation. Our God is perfect. You say, well, what does this have to do with me, Brother John? Well, a couple of things. One, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I hope today's the day. I really do because the problem is, is you'll be still like that sinful glass. You're still tainted by your sin. You're in need of the holiness of God to pour over you and change your life. Only God can take you and make you clean. Only God can transform your life so that one day you can stand before him, not in your righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. But if you're a Christian, you say, what does it have to do with me? Well, it means two things. Number one, it means that you need to be living the Christ-like life in all that you do. You need to represent the righteousness of Christ in everything you do. Holiness should pour out of your life because of who's inside of you. I think it was awesome. One little girl, one time she was talking to her mama. She said, Mama, she said, God's bigger than us, right? Mama said, yep. She said, Mama, she said, God lives in us, right? Mama said, yep. The little girl said, Mama, if God's bigger than us and God lives in us, shouldn't he be pouring out of us? Oh, yeah, he should be. If you're a Christian, you need to be living a righteous life before others so that they can see Christ in you. But secondly, when you pray, Don't pray thinking you need to change God's mind. Pray with the intent of him needing to change yours. Pray with the intent of wanting his will because his will is perfect and you need it for your life. Now, I'm going to tell you that comes, that's hard sometimes when we're praying for someone who's sick. When we're praying for someone who's about to die. My wife and I have experienced it with her grandmother and have experienced it with her mother. And we prayed. My wife was very young when she lost her mother. And we prayed and we said, God, we want you to heal her. She had cancer. We had just moved to Alabama. And we prayed, God, please heal her. Please heal her. This is a good woman. We want to have many, many years with her. Her grandkids love her dearly. We want her here with us. Will you please heal her? He did. He just healed her completely when he took her home with him. And you know what? Man, we miss her. But we don't regret it at all. 
Because let me tell you something, she's up there dancing on streets of gold and she's just sitting there singing, I can't wait for you to get here. She ain't worried about what's going on down here. She's just waiting on everybody to get up there. I promise you, if, if your loved one has already gone on to be with Jesus, then praise God they're in a better place than we are. And learn to pray and ask God to change you. Don't try to change him. My prayer today is you understand the God we serve. Man, he's perfect. He's holy. And he has no need to change because he's God. And that should make us want to worship him even more.